The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. WWJD, all right, is a, um, an acronym, right? What would Jesus do? Uh, that's a popular acronym within the world of Christianity. Um, it's a good question. It's a question that steers our ethics. It's a, a question that sort of God question to help determine what we should do. But here on Resurrection Sunday, it's important for us to consider two other acronyms, WDJD and WIJD. What did Jesus do? And what is Jesus doing? Or another way to think about it, what's Easter all about? And why does it matter? And here's what I want to emphasize for us this morning. What Jesus did, it impacts what you and I do. It impacts everything. And what Jesus is doing now does as well. W-D-J-D. What did Jesus do? Well, a lot of things when we think about it. Right? He, he took on human flesh. He humbled himself. He came for us in the incarnation. He lived the perfect life that we could never live, perfectly fulfilling the law on our behalf. And then what we remembered and celebrated in this sanctuary this past Friday night is that he died for us in our place for our sins. He became our substitute, our substitutionary atonement. And the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity is that we are declared right before God. Justified is the the theological term, counted as righteous and reconciled to him, not once we've begun to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get our act together, but rather when we collapse into the honest acknowledgement that we never will and that we need Jesus. By grace, through faith, we are saved, not by our works. That was in our readings earlier. Salvation isn't spelled D-O, it's spelled D-O-N-E. We simply trust in Jesus and all that he has done. All we bring to the equation is our need of him. Listen, that is good news to sinful folk like us. We call it the gospel, and we are really, seriously, joyfully serious about it around here. It's rooted deeply not in what we should do or even in what Jesus would do, but rather in what Jesus has already done. And yet, when we ask the question, what did Jesus do? That's not always done. Jesus didn't just come and live and die for us. He also rose from the grave. And no definition of the gospel is complete without this. The the resurrection of Jesus is good news. It's essential to the good news. It's essential to the Christian gospel. Let's go ahead and turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, John chapter 20 this morning. John chapter 20. If you're using one of those black pew Bibles in front of you, you're going to find it on page 906. John chapter 20, page 906. If you don't have a Bible, or for some reason there's not one in front of you, this will be up on the screen as well. This is one of the passages that Evan just read for us. 
Again, John chapter 20, we'll begin in verse 1, and let's just, let's just enter into this together for a few minutes. It's the first day of the week. It's Sunday morning. It's really early, and it's still dark outside. And Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb where Jesus has been buried. Do you see that there in verse 1? Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. And what did she find? She saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Verse 2 now. And so she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They've taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they've laid him. Now look, Mary's first instinct here is not, oh my goodness, Jesus rose from the grave. Her first instinct when she gets to the tomb, she doesn't, she doesn't go in, she doesn't look in, she just sees that the stone that was closing the tomb had been taken away, and, and her first instinct is to conclude that Jesus' body was stolen. Grave robberies were pretty common back then, so common, in fact, that the emperor eventually ordered that capital punishment be meted out to anyone convicted of destroying a tomb or messing with it, taking a body, even moving the stone away. See, corpses back then, you say, why would anybody do that? Corpses back then were wrapped in expensive spices. Remember, Jesus had been buried by Joseph of Arimathea, a very rich man, Matthew tells us. Just before this passage, in, in John chapter 19, uh, we're told of how Nicodemus, when they were preparing Jesus' body for burial, showed up with 75 pounds of myrrh and aloe. Brother must have had the Costco membership, right? I mean, that's a lot of stuff. And they bound Jesus up in all of this. And any corpse wrapped up like this would have been a very attractive target for plunder. And that's not even to mention the fact that this wasn't this wasn't just any old corpse. <laughs> this was Jesus. The, the, the one who had claimed to be the Savior of the world, the Son of God. The, the one who claimed that he would actually rise from the dead. And so it's feasible to conclude that his boss, body also might have been stolen out of malice by people who hated Jesus and wanted to take his body and maybe not just with the nails in the hands and, and all the scourge marks on his back, but maybe desecrate his body even some more. So grave robbery, even grave desecration, it's a common occurrence. Mary would have known that, and she concludes that. And then she goes, and she gets Peter and the other disciple who Jesus loved, which is John's not so Verse 3, they're going towards the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. This is one of my favorite parts in John's account of the gospel, right? He's like, hey, just so you all know, I got there first. Right? I mean, only a guy would write this. He's just like, hey, I know, you know, y'all you you like Peter a whole lot, um, and, and, and he's going to write some other stuff in the Bible and all that. And, and he got there, and yeah, he, he was one of the first ones to profess that Jesus was a guy. But just so we all know, I'm faster than him, right? I don't know if he ran a 26.2 and the other one ran a 25 flat or what it was, but 
John 1. And then verse 5, John, who got there first, he'll actually say it again in verse 8, just so we all know. He's like, get it in there a couple times, right? Rub it in. Verse 5, John, he gets there first and he stoops. He doesn't go in. He just, he just peers in. And he sees the linen cloths lying there. And then Peter catches up. John's like, it's about time. Peter gets up. He arrives. He goes right on in. And he too sees the linen cloths lying there. And he notices as well that the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, was, was not lying there with the rest of the linen cloths, but had been folded up neatly and set aside by itself. This is not what they were expecting. Verse 9 tells us that at this point, they didn't yet understand the scripture that Jesus must rise from the dead. What they were expecting was either a robbery or a desecration. But when they see the linen cloths lying there, they realize no one had simply stolen the body. They wouldn't have left behind all the expensive linen and, and spices. When they saw the face cloth neatly folded there, they also would have realized this isn't the work of desecrators. Upon first arriving, right, upon their first assessment, this isn't what they were expecting. They were expecting to show up and have to protect Jesus. They maybe fend off the robbers, defending Jesus. What they saw, they didn't expect. Now, let me ask you, Maybe especially if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. What would you have been expecting? Hmm? How do you answer the WDJD question? What did Jesus do? He's a historical figure. Even atheists will attest that Jesus really did exist, that, that he really did live, that he even really was crucified and buried. But WDJD, did he just really live a good life? Is he just really a, a, a great moral example for us to follow? If, listen, if that's the extent of it, the resurrection really doesn't matter. In fact, it's completely irrelevant. You could have stayed home this morning and taken care of the ham. And sure, we can still ask like WWJD and seek to live better lives of, of moral do-goodism, but that's not Christianity. It's not. Christianity doesn't just ask WWJD, it also asks and answers WDJD. And what did Jesus do? He rose from the grave. He conquered death. That's what he did. And what Jesus did, it impacts what you and I do. It impacts everything. Like, you have to wrestle with this. You can't ignore it. How do you explain Stolen by grave robbers. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have left the loot. It wasn't stolen by the disciples. Pilate posted guards there. And what's more, after they find the tomb empty, Matthew 28 records the chief priest paid hush money to the soldiers to say that the disciples had come, stolen his body so they could save face. These are the same disciples who then began to, to preach that Jesus was risen from the dead. 
And the Jews, you'll remember, they didn't like that. They couldn't refute it, though, by presenting the body. No one ever did. No one ever has. No one ever will. No one's ever going to find the bones of Jesus. In fact, if they do, I quit. <laughs> like, not just ministry, like, I'm out on Christianity. It's futile. It would be futile. But no one ever produced the body of Jesus to shut up the disciples. And a land, 11 of the 12 of these early ones, right, gave their lives up preaching the gospel. I don't just mean like they gave the rest of their life to it. They died for preaching Jesus. They said, shut up about Jesus or we're going to put you to death. I'm not going to shut up about Jesus. So they put him to death. If they had made it up, right, if it was all just a, a lie, if they did somehow steal the body, there's no way 11 of them, and then over the centuries, many, many more, right, would have went to the grave, went to their own death, proclaiming that it was true. Beyond the church in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that after the resurrection, right, Jesus appeared to 500 people all at once, most of whom are still alive, he says. So if, if most means more than half, there's at least 251 of these people who are still around. Go interview them. That's what Paul No way to explain Christianity. There's no way to explain the rapid growth of the church without the resurrection. One theologian says it this way. He says, even on the doubtful supposition that all the first Christians were dupes or hallucinating enthusiasts, the Jewish authorities, though they had every incentive to do so, could not come up with the body of the man whose execution they had organized. <laughs> what did Jesus do? And he rose from the grave. And this impacts you. It impacts everything. You cannot ignore it. You, you cannot ignore the empty tomb. You have to explain it somehow. What would you have been expecting when you got there? Peter and John were initially expecting to find signs of robbery and desecration. They didn't find signs of any of that. And then, verse 8, we read, the other disciple who reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and he believed. <laughs> this is actually an incredible statement of faith right here. Most of the early disciples came to true faith in Jesus as the resurrected Lord, not because the tomb was empty and they couldn't find the body, but rather instead because they found him alive. He appeared to them. But John testifies that he came to faith before he ever saw Jesus in resurrected form. In fact, at the end of the chapter, after Jesus appears to doubting Thomas, you remember doubting Thomas? What does Jesus say to him? Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Friends, that's us. That's us, that's everyone in here who believes in Jesus. We haven't seen him, but we believe in him. We believe that he really came for us, that he really lived for us, that he really died for us, and that he really rose for us. That's what Jesus did. 
And it impacts us. It impacts what you and I do. Let, let, me, let me give you just two real quick pieces of application here along those lines if you're a believer. Because the tomb was empty, you don't have to make Christianity relevant. Christianity is inherently relevant because of the empty tomb. You don't have to get cute with it. I'm all about contextualization, contextualizing the gospel, but listen, Jesus doesn't need a great marketing scheme. We don't have to prove to people that Christianity is fun or cool or anything like that. The relevancy of Christianity is not tied up in the entertainment value of a weekly Sunday morning production. The relevancy of Christianity is directly tied to the empty tomb. Likewise, and just like Peter and John found out in this passage, we don't have to defend or protect Jesus. He's a big boy. His resurrection speaks for itself. Have you ever found yourself in a, in a conversation where maybe you felt like you needed to like defend Jesus? Like, oh, I know he said this, but, you know, listen. Or, hey, I know some people kind of think it like this way, but, hey, come on, let, let me just kind of show you how, how I really think about it. I've been there. Listen, Jesus doesn't need your protection. He doesn't need your defense. God took care of all of that when he raised him from the dead. Because the tomb was empty, God doesn't need you to be Jesus' PR agent. Or his defense attorney. He doesn't need you to intercede for him. Which leads us then from what did Jesus do to secondly, what's he doing now? What is Jesus doing? For many of us, if we're honest, we probably answer that our functional Jesus isn't really doing a whole lot right now besides waiting to return. In fact, some of you, if you're going through a hard spot in your life, one of the questions you ask is, what the heck is Jesus doing? Where is he? Why isn't he moving? Why isn't he acting? What is Jesus doing now? Listen, Jesus isn't just waiting around, waiting to return. That's not a full picture of the gospel. Let, let me give you a, a full picture of the gospel. We can actually draw it like this. I realize that, that that's like 0.2 font size, so you can't even, like I can't even, I can't even read that. But I could when it was on my computer and it made a lot of sense, but now it doesn't. We refer to this as the Bullmore drawing. You don't really need the words, you'll catch the drift of the lines. Um, I think a pastor named Mike Bullmore was perhaps the first to sketch it out. That's how I picked it up. Um, but it's intended to give a comprehensive picture of the many facets of the gospel. It begins in the eternity past, in that upper left-hand corner. Right? Jesus has always existed. He's eternal. In fact, it was in eternity past that the plan was hatched by God the Father to send Jesus the Son for us. The sending takes place in that first vertical line. That goes down the incarnation. He came for us. This is good news. He lived. He died. He was buried. He rose. He appeared. It's all good news. It's part of the good news. Acts 1, he ascended. That's the line going back up. And that flat line then towards the top of the drawing over to the right, that's where we're at now in redemptive history. And of course, he'll return again at the second coming. 
And when he does, if we belong to him, if we have confessed with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the grave, we will be saved, Paul says in Romans 10, and we'll spend eternity with him in perfect, resurrected, glorified bodies of our own. That's good news. If not, if you have not believed, that last arrow doesn't go up, it goes down. And you'll spend eternity instead in hell. That's not good news. And if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, I would exhort you to trust in Christ. This good news can become true of you. Like, if a moron like me can get in on this, anyone can. But right now, for those of us who believe, for those of us who belong to him, listen, we have a resurrected and ascended Savior. Jesus is not dead. He's alive. He has risen. And yes, he rules and reigns. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And yes, he's waiting to return, and no one knows the day or the hour. But there's also at least one other thing that he's doing that is very often extremely overlooked. What is Jesus doing? Well, Hebrews 7.25 tells us. And this first comes in context in Hebrews 7, in a, in a context in Hebrews 7 that focuses on the permanent priesthood of the risen Jesus. Like he's not just king, he's our priest king. And, and consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing now? Well, one thing he's doing is interceding for us, praying for us. You ever had somebody pray for you and like over you? It can be a very powerful experience, can't it? There's power in prayer. Most of us know, some of us know that very experientially. There's power in prayer. So Don Carson, who I, I quoted um, a little earlier, a, a little while back, he wrote a, a book about his dad, Tom Carson. And Tom Carson was a, a pastor who pastored largely in obscurity in Canada. And his son, Don, he titled his book about him, Memoirs of an Ordinary Pastor, The Life and Reflections of Tom Carson. In it, Don, the son, tells a story about his dad's private prayer life. He says that my dad it would, would always pray in, in his study in our house. And wherever we lived, whatever house it was, he said, we always, dad always had a study. And he would go in there and pray. And he says his dad's practice was to go into the study, close the door, kneel down on his knees in front of the big old chair that sat behind his desk. And he would pray out loud, possibly to keep himself awake, probably just to keep himself concentrated. And Don says we could, we could hear him outside the door. And we were never to intrude. But outside the door, you could hear him. And he says, I can remember him praying for 45 minutes or more. In fact, it would have been odd for there to be a day where he didn't do this. Undoubtedly, at times, Tom Carson was praying for his family. Praying even for his son, who could hear him outside the study door. Now, here's an image that I want you to never get out of your mind. Jesus 
is doing that for you. The risen Jesus is doing that right now. He always lives to make intercession for those who draw near to God through him. Why would he need to do that? Aren't we justified already? We are. Isn't there now no condemnation for us if we trust in in Christ? That's right. Jesus' heavenly ministry of intercession has nothing to do with placating or, or propitiating the wrath of God. He's already taken all that on. He's not trying to convince an angry father to relent. He's not talking the father off the edge of, of, of punishing you for the indwelling sin that's in your life, for the mistakes that you make in your life. All that was taken care of on the cross. And now, though, Christ's heavenly intercession, what it is, is the moment-by-moment application of all of his atoning work in your life. Listen, if, if, if we go back to that Bullmore drawing, God's love for you has been consistent all the way throughout. Right? He, he really loves you. Like, really, really loves you. All the way into eternity past, he's loved you. He sent Jesus because he loves you. Jesus lived the perfect life in your place because he loves you. God showed his love for you in that while you were still a sinner, this is how he showed his love. Christ died for you. Christ died for you because he loves you. He didn't die to make you lovable. His love preceded it all. He rose for you because he loved you. He ascended for you because he loved you. It's not shown on here, but he sent his spirit into you because he loves you. And one day he's going to return, you guessed it, because he loves you. And, and, the risen and ascended Christ, right now in heaven, intercedes for you because he loves you. Dane Ortland, in his incredible book, Gentle and Lowly, describes Jesus' heavenly intercession this way. He says, the intercession of Christ is his heart connecting our heart to the Father's heart. Father's heart of love. Now, why is that important? Well, every single one of us, no matter how long we've been a Christian for, if we know our own hearts well enough, we know, we know there are areas of our life where we have a really hard time believing that God's forgiveness reaches into. Oh, we'll say that we're forgiven. If you ask us, you forgiven? Yeah, we'll say it most of the time, unless it's a bad day. And we're like, ah, maybe, yeah. I'm supposed to say yes. Right, but there are some deep spots still, aren't there? In your life? Maybe from your past? Maybe from your not so far past. Maybe from the present. Maybe seems so ugly, seems so unrepairable. So little progress has been made there that you doubt any real progress will ever be made there. Doubts we still have. And Satan tempts us to despair. 
Every true Christian in the room knows something about this. We know that we are to the uttermost sinners. And that we are in moment-by-moment need of the to the uttermost Savior. Well, consequently, the resurrected, ascended, interceding Jesus is that Savior. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's his eternal life's work. It's his eternal labor of love. In that same passage of Carson's book where he's talking about overhearing his dad praying, he also tells about his brother Jim. And he says that Jim has a story about um, busting in on his, on his dad's study once unannounced, only to, to find his dad there on his knees praying. And then Don quotes his brother Jim saying this, that image has always remained with me, especially during my later rebellious teen years. While walking away from God, I could not get away from the image of my father on his knees praying for me. And then he says this, it's one of the things that eventually brought me back. <laughs> Listen, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know how far you've wandered or not. I can't see the depths of your doubts or the depths of your, your spiritual insecurity, but if you've wandered a bit, if, if, if you've maybe even walked away from God, would the image of the, the risen, ascended Jesus interceding for you, praying for you, would it bring you back? Would it bring you back? His love has not changed for you, even if your love for him has waned. Friends, he's able to save to the uttermost. You can't wander further than that. He's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since, since he always lives to make intercession for them. What is Jesus doing? This. This. He's laboring in prayer for you. Possibly praying for you to turn back to God because he loves you. Maybe today is the day that his perfect prayer is perfectly answered by our perfect Father in heaven. And then listen, if you're here, if you're here and you are walking closely with Jesus, praise God. I mean, like, literally, praise Jesus, right? Listen, though, he's, he's praying for you, too. He's praying for all who draw near to, to God through him, right? This is to impact you, too, is to bring a, the, the heavenly intercession of, of Jesus to bring you peace and consolation and encouragement wherever you're at in your life. Listen how the late great theologian Louis Burkhoff says it. He says, Christ's ministry of intercession is also a ministry of loving care for his people. He helps them in their difficulties, in their trials, their temptations. It is a consoling thought 
that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our own prayer life. That he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which are not even present to our minds, which we often neglect to include in our prayers. And that he prays for our protection against the dangers of which we are not even conscious. And against the enemies which threaten us, who do not even notice it. He is praying that our faith may not cease and that we may come out victoriously in the end. What did Jesus do? Friends, he came for you. He lived for you. He died for you. He's your perfect sacrifice, church. 100% acceptable and efficacious. He also rose for you and ascended for you. And and now he's your perfect, permanent high priest, the risen Christ is. And what is Jesus doing now? He is in constant contact, unbroken communication with the Father, praying perfect prayers. And the perfect Father always perfectly answers Jesus' perfect prayers. His priestly, heavenly intercession is never-ending. And therefore, the salvation that he has secured for you in his resurrection is absolute. What Jesus did impacts everything. What Jesus is doing now, it does as well. This in part, it's what Easter is all about. It's why it matters. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus now. We thank you that, that he is alive and, and ascended and, and ruling and reigning as king. And also that he intercedes as our perfect, permanent high priest, sovereign and sympathetic one. Oh God, let not our hearts be troubled. Oh, that we would believe in Jesus. That he has gone and prepared a place for us. That he's there right now with you, Father, praying for us. Don't let us ever get this imagery out of our minds. Help us rejoice today, knowing that he will come again for us. And take us there to live forever with you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.